This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is the latest episode of Rear Vision, the show that looks at the stories behind the news headlines. It's the 70th anniversary of the communist revolution in China. Mao Zedong addressing a million people in Tiananmen Square, proclaiming the establishment of the People's Republic of China on the 1st of October 1949. In this rear vision, we'll look at what happened in China during the turbulent decades leading up to that event, and why it was that the communists were able to ultimately claim victory. The story begins in 1912, when, after over 2,000 years of imperial rule, a republic was established to replace the monarchy in China. Although the Qing dynasty had lasted for almost three centuries, it had been weakened by both internal rebellion and foreign imperialism during the previous century. Professor Frank Dicotta from the University of Hong Kong says the new republic brought enormous positive change, at least to the people of southern China. What you have to bear in mind is that China was Asia's first republic in 1912. It had an electorate of some 40 million people, meaning roughly 10% of popular representation, a level not achieved by India and Japan till much later, 1928 and 1935 respectively. There is an attempt to, a concerted attempt to separate out powers during the Republic of China over decades that leads to the effective establishment of the rule of law and an independent judicial system. Foreign associations visit courts, visit prisons and give it pretty much the seal of approval. They protect the freedom of association. There's a civil environment that appears the moment people are granted freedom of association with the collapse of the empire, again, 1911. Large, powerful chambers of commerce, independent student unions, smaller civil associations set up, for instance, by school parents, you name it, an extraordinary flourishing environment. And of course, everybody takes freedom of religion for granted. It was a time of intellectual excitement. The influential May 4th or New Culture Movement emerged around 1916, critical of China's traditional values, which some blamed for the country's subordinate international position. The Treaty of Versailles after World War I gave the German concessions in China to Japan. China refused to sign the treaty and a massive wave of student protest broke out in Beijing. Dr. Daniel Koss from Harvard University. The May 4th movement had first of all broken out in reaction to the Treaty of Versailles, which was seen by China and by Chinese students in particular as treating China unfairly because it was giving Chinese territory to Japan and that really aroused nationalist patriotic movement. But it was really much more. It was about what kind of internal domestic conditions would bring about a government that is allowing itself to be accumulated by foreigners in such a way. So it was against the government. It was against old Chinese traditions. And this was really a very broad movement that criticized everything from the old style of running the government, also corruption in the government, 
and uh, Chinese traditions, even down to the writing style. So there were very radical ideas. People were even abandoning their names and adopt, like they didn't want to have family names anymore because that would all be associated with the idea that the Chinese family was important, the patriarchy, and so people abandoned their family names. So there were many ideas floating around at the time. A lot of them centered on culture and uh, others on politics. And communism was really one substream out of many different attempts at trying to imagine and envision a new China. Where was it centered, this dawn of communism in China? It all started out really in Shanghai. And actually not only communism, the May 4th movement itself took place in Beijing. But in Shanghai, there was, of course, also a lot of contact with foreigners. And that's where actually both parties, the Kuomintang and the Communist Party, were founded. So a lot of it was happening in Shanghai, where also a lot of the business, the foreign business was, and where there was a real labor movement taking place. Whereas in Beijing, it was all more intellectual. It was more publications and articles and magazines coming out in Beijing. And in Shanghai, it was more the organizing, the political organizing, a little bit away from the ancient capital and the old ideas and the old bureaucratic class. So Shanghai was a good place to start new things. The writings of Karl Marx and the development of communist political theory happened in Europe. How did communism come to take root in China? Professor Rana Mitter, director of the University of Oxford China Centre. The idea of communism, at least in the European context, is often associated with the Russian Revolution of 1917. And that is relevant for China, but there's a somewhat different history as well. A lot of the people who became the first earliest communists, the most famous of whom, of course, was Mao Zedong, who of course came to fame as, as Chairman Mao, were actually radicals before they were truly communists. So Mao, in fact, was very concerned with other sorts of intellectual ideas that emerged in the early 20th century, ideas such as social Darwinism, the, the idea that there were competitions between races and that the Chinese were losing. So in that sense, communism came for some some of these people as a way of trying to find a way of thinking and ideology that would deal with China's particular problems in the 1910s and 1920s. Those included a lot of military conflicts within China itself. They included the fact that various overseas powers, Britain, France, the United States, had territorial control over much of China. And it was in that context that many of them discovered the writings of Marx, anarchist writers from Russia and others who seemed to provide a new way forward. But the point was that it didn't just suddenly happen in a flash of light in 1917 when they saw what was going on in Russia. There had been a previous learning process as well. How did they adapt those ideas to the political situation in China at the time? One of the most notable things about Chinese communism is that it adapted very notably to the particular conditions of China. Communism had first, of course, come to power in Soviet Russia in an essentially urban context. It was the revolutionaries in Moscow and St. Petersburg who really led the way along with the workers in those cities. Now, that would have been even more difficult to do in China than it would in Russia because China just had a tiny proportion of urban workers. And while the early Communist Party in the 1920s did try and foment uprisings in the cities of China, it also realized that it couldn't do that without a bit of help. So a big moment came 
1923, when the still-fledgling Soviet state sent various advisors, notably a man named Borodin, to actually go to Shanghai and to Beijing to basically help the new Communist Party of China out, to give them some advice from the friendly older brother across the border. And that was one of the ways in which aspects of the Soviet experience were adapted to what was happening in China's cities. But also, this was an important and actually crucial difference, some early communists, like a man named Peng Pai, actually said early on, it's the countryside where China's really going to have a revolution. We've got many more peasants, farmers in the countryside than we do urban workers. That's where we have to launch the revolution. And that division between the rural and urban communists remained a really live one throughout decades of the Chinese Communist Party's growth. How did a small group of like-minded friends grow into a force that would ultimately take over the whole country? It's an absolutely extraordinary story in the way that the Chinese Communist Party moved from being just a few tens of people in China's major cities to actually being a machine that would take over this huge country of hundreds of millions of people and, of course, in a rather different form, still rules it to this very day. And one of the ways to express what happened was in the title of a book by the Cambridge University historian Hans van der Ven. And his book on the origins of the Chinese Communist Party is called From Friend to Comrade. And that phrase, from friend to comrade, really expresses in a nutshell what happened. When you start out in the late 19-teens, early 1920s, with the earliest communists, they're basically hanging out as friends in in tea houses, in little kind of university seminars, discussing these exciting books about Marxism, about politics that are coming in from the West and Russia, and which they're translating and reading after a hard day's work. Now, those groups, those study societies and small gatherings, slowly but surely turned into a more formal political party. The, the Chinese Communist Party itself was formally founded in 1921. But then the whole thing gets booster rockets when the Soviets come in to help them out after 1923. And also, crucially, they ally with the biggest non-communist party in China, the Chinese Nationalist Party, sometimes known as the Kuomintang or Guomindang in the Chinese pronunciation, under its leader Sun Yat-sen. Now, this triple alliance, the Communist Party, the Nationalist Party, and the Soviets came together between 1923 and 27 in a combination of military and political progress that eventually led to the establishment of a new government, which actually had its capital at Nanjing. Now, the Communists and the Nationalists fell out big time after that happened. And in fact, the Nationalists under their then leader, Chiang Kai-shek, turned on and essentially gunned down thousands of communists in the streets of Shanghai and Guangzhou. But the principle had been set up that the Communist Party had changed from being a little group of friends in tea houses to being an outfit that would have its own army, that would have its own ideological structures, and that was very heavily influenced by what was becoming Stalin's Russia. The violent suppression of the Communist Party by the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek began in Shanghai in April 1927 and was followed by a full-scale purge in all areas under KMT control. Thousands of communists were arrested and executed. A year later, the nationalists established a government in Nanjing, although large areas of China still remained under the control of local warlords. The so-called Nanjing Decade was a time of great change in China. When you look at documents from the time, you really see a big contrast. On the one hand, it's really the grim realities of poverty. I mean, especially rural China was bitterly poor at the time. You also see very 
low education and a lot of violence, both the political violence between warlords, but also petty violence, crime and bandits and secret societies. That is the old China that Chinese propaganda would also emphasize later on. That was kind of the dark side of China. But at the same time, the Nanjing decade also saw a lot of cosmopolitanism, new businesses, new ideas, political alternatives. So there were also a lot of hopes floating around that old China could somehow develop into something new. And if you compare 1911, which is when the Qing dynasty fell, and then 1937, when the Japanese started to occupy China, a lot had happened in the meantime, a lot of modernizing, and China was unrecognizable. So it's not true that things were stale and nothing was improving, but it was still dire poverty and violence was widespread. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on RN Radio National. On the 70th anniversary of the founding of the People's Republic of China, we're hearing about the turbulent, violent decades that brought the Communists to power on the 1st of October 1949. During the Nanjing decade, the Communist Party, having lost many of its leaders and thousands of its members in the violent suppression of 1927, retreated and regrouped, forming so-called Soviet areas, the largest of which was led by Mao Zedong. Associate Professor Ching Dong Yuan from the China Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. Mao was part of the Communist Party, very closely affiliated with the militaries. And so he was elected the chairman of the Soviet. So that's where Chairman Mao first emerged in that title uh, in, in the early 1930s. So, of course, Chiang Kai-shek organized the five major campaigns trying to eliminate the, the communist element in this part because those are very mountainous areas, very difficult to do. So the first four times, those campaigns were not successful in eliminating the communist elements. All of these took place between 1931, 1934, 35 during that period of time. But the last one, the fifth campaign, was successful because the Chiang Kai-shek decided to, instead of fighting one-off battle, he started to move gradually and cut off all the supplies and then gradually tighten this loop and then to shrink the communists occupy the areas. So at the same time in 1931, September 18th, Japan invaded China's northeastern part. At the time, it's uh, known as Manchuria. So they quickly occupied Manchuria. But Chiang Kai-shek was not interested in fighting the Japanese because he wanted to eliminate the communist element first. So the fifth campaign was successful, so the communist right army could no longer stay in Jiangxi. So they had to evacuate. So that's the famous Long March. It is 1935, and the Long March, the grueling epic of Chinese communist history, nears its end. Fleeing the nationalist forces of Chiang Kai-shek, remnants of a shattered communist army head for sanctuary in northern China. Out of 90,000 troops, only 20,000 have survived the year-long trek of 6,000 miles across the heart of China, to the northern highlands, to Yunnan, 
where they set up headquarters in a bleak mountain hideout. I think that if you took a group of Chinese historians of the Communist Party, and I have done that on occasion, and asked them what's the single most transformative event in the history of the party, I think the vast majority would come up with one answer, and that's the Long March. The decision by the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party between 1935 and 1936 to essentially undertake a journey of many thousands of miles. Uh, I'm not giving the exact number because, in fact, the Long March wasn't just one march. It was several routes at once with different bits of the Communist Party making their way across China from the southern central part of China, where they essentially felt they were, were highly vulnerable to attacks by the Nationalist Party of Chiang Kai-shek all the way to the northwest, where they were eventually able to form a more stable base area to develop their ideas, to regather their strength, to set up their own army. But this long march was one that essentially was, in some cases, literally a death march. They started out, again, with perhaps 90,000 troops at the beginning of that uh, journey from south-central China and made their way with great difficulty across really barren, really bleak terrain. We're talking mountains, marshes, rivers, freezing conditions on the borderlands of Tibet. And depending on how you count it, we're talking about really just a few thousand, five to 10,000 maybe, of those marchers making it to the other end, first to the city of Bauan and then ending up in the city of Yan'an in northwest China. This march became... A legend. It's a little bit like the way that the British think about Dunkirk in World War II. It was actually a retreat from the enemy, but it was undertaken with such bravery and with such resolution that it became a sort of victory in its own right. And that's why being a long marcher, being someone who was there on that journey as that first generation of people like Mao Zedong were, became a sort of political token, a sign that these were leaders you really could not mess with all the way through their often very long lives. It was the biggest, most prestigious element of communist history that any leader could have been part of. In 1937, 10 years after Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists had crushed the communists, they were forced to come together once again, following the invasion of China by Japan. Shanghai, 1937. The blow falls. Japan strikes. In China's life and death struggle, Chiang Kai-shek embraces an old enemy, Mao Zedong, as a new ally. Red soldiers march into battle with propaganda posters on their backs. And as the war goes on, Mao's army grows from 40,000 to 1 million men. One of the most transformative moments in the fortunes of the Chinese Communist Party was the outbreak of war between China and Japan in 1937. Now, the communists had managed to go on the long march and essentially regroup in northwestern China, but they were still on the run. 
it was quite possible that even at that stage, the Chinese nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek would launch one of its uncompromisingly named extermination campaigns and essentially send troops to finally wipe them out. And the event that essentially turned the tables was the outbreak of what had been a long simmering sense that there was going to be a war between China and Japan. That sense had been simmering all the way after the sudden invasion and occupation of Manchuria, the northeastern part of China, by Japan in 1931. And essentially, that crisis came to a head in the summer of 1937. And it meant that Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government had to switch focus. It became much more important by that stage to push back against the foreign enemy, the Japanese, rather than trying to destroy the internal enemy, the communists. And so in the summer of 1937, in, in August, there was an uneasy but real truce actually more than a truce, an agreement to cooperate signed between the communist leadership and the nationalist leadership that for the duration of the war, they would operate in tandem with each other against the Japanese rather than opposing each other. Now, that alliance became quite ropey, quite weak after about 1941. But for several years, it held quite strongly. And it was really important in terms of allowing the Communist Party not just to regroup, but at least for a while to be recognized as an official part of the resistance of China against Japan. Well, a stroke of luck. 1937, Japan invades China. What could be better from the point of view of Mao Zedong and the Communist Party of China? The Japanese do what they would never have been able to do, namely sweep away Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists from all major cities along the railways, from north to south, in particular along the coast. They forced Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists to retreat into the hinterland. They literally crushed them. And that's precisely what the communists would not have been able to do. That's point one. Point two, from 1937 to 1945, although there is an, a nominal alliance between the communists and the nationalists, Mao Zedong orders his troops never to intervene in any of the fighting with the Japanese. They are far behind enemy lines in Yan'an, uh, Shanxi province, and they use their time to build up an alternative agrarian state, which they do rather successfully, since not a shot is ever fired at them. Un unlike the wartime capital of Chongqing, where Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalists take refuge, a city which is subjected to um, continuous bombardments. After the defeat of Japan in World War II, the possibility of the nationalists and communists forming a unity government was discussed by the victorious world powers. Ultimately, though, civil war between the communists and nationalists would resume. So after the war, of course, the United Nations was established, basically a discussion about the UN, the Security Council. So Roosevelt basically said, well, China played a very important role, made lots of sacrifice, so we should give China a permanent membership in this new international organization. So China was a part of the five powers at the time. So there was the idea from the Americans, basically, and also from Stalin, basically, okay, maybe Chiang Kai-shek should be the, the leader for a unified China. At the time, also, on the European continent, in France, in many other countries, all communist parties basically gave up their arms and joined the socialist coalition government. So there are many of those similar events. So they wanted to replicate similar things in, in China. So... Mao, Chairman Mao, 
at the beginning thought, okay, let's try. So Mao went to Chongqing to have negotiation with Jiang Kai-shek. So they talked in 1945 about how to organize, you know, how we plan for a new China, liberated China. But they could not agree on the fundamentals because Jiang Kai-shek won the, uh, the Communist Party. You, know, you don't need the military. Now we are unified. So you could have those military join in the national military forces. Right? So we would have control. We can give you supplies and all that. But Mao was very you know, careful. He knew that if you gave away the military, you basically you're done. So the Civil War started between the communists and the nationalists pretty much in late 1946 and lasted for three years. The period immediately after 1945, when World War II ended in Asia, was a period of unexpected developments. It's just worth remembering, because we sometimes don't think as much about the end of the war in Asia as we ought to do, that nobody bar a very small number of people who knew about the atomic bomb project, the Manhattan Project, realized that it might end as quickly as August of 1945. If a land war, a conventional war, an invasion of Japan had happened, then everyone expected that the war in Asia, including in China, would certainly go into 1946 and maybe even into 1947. So the relatively swift ending of the war was a surprise. It also meant that China its communists and its nationalists were caught somewhat by surprise in terms of what came next, and partly because they hadn't expected to essentially not have to face the Japanese quite so swiftly. It took a little while where they tried to negotiate with each other before finally a civil war broke out. And that, in a sense, was the last stage of the succession of conflicts and wars that marked the first half of 20th century China. And At first, it's worth noting that the vast majority of outside observers, Americans, British, whoever it might be, really thought that the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek were going to win the civil war. If there wasn't going to be a coalition government between the communists under Mao and the nationalists under Chiang, well, then Chiang would basically beat down the communists, defeat them, and essentially send them scurrying out into the countryside. That isn't, of course, how it turned out. It turned out that in large part because they had been battered down by the repeated experience of having to fight against the Japanese during the war, the nationalist troops were understaffed, they were of low morale, they were often very corrupt, they were often treated, the people who they had technically liberated from the Japanese, extremely badly, dissipating the goodwill they had earned as liberators, and essentially opened the goalpost wide for the communists essentially to be able to take over. The communists, of course, as we know, won in 1949. The reasons for that are multiple, I think. There's no one factor, but amongst the key issues you have to remember are, first of all, military tactics. The communist armies under generals like Lin Biao had learned a great deal from guerrilla warfare against the Japanese, as well as learning their more conventional battle tactics. And that was very important in, say, launching sieges in in northeastern China. Then, of course, there was the social issue. Basically, people were beaten down and demoralized by the long years of war against Japan. They just wanted the civil war to end. And eventually, it looked like giving the communists, who seemed to be, at least initially, less corrupt, and more socially aware was the right solution to put forward. And finally, 
foreign powers decided very early on that they really wouldn't intervene in a big way in China. Chiang Kai-shek, I think, expected that the Americans might intervene in the way that they had reshaped Europe. But Harry Truman's American administration decided early on that it wasn't worth trying to rescue Chiang Kai-shek's regime, even had it been possible, which is very doubtful. It was going to have to take its chances. And as we know, in the end, that combination of factors actually led to a result that few had expected even as late as 1946-47, the victory of China's first communist government to come to power under its own full steam, the People's Republic of China, in 1949. A monster rally in Shanghai celebrates communism's greatest victory since the coup in Czechoslovakia. Five months ago, the troops of Mao Zedong marched into Shanghai unopposed. That victory was celebrated in July at a gigantic parade in what is today the largest red city in the world, now so isolated, that these pictures took three months to reach Britain. In those three months, the Reds have changed the face of China and brought the world's largest country within the communist empire. Of course, the story doesn't end there. Taking power was just a first step. The real revolution was to come. It is the end of this rear vision, though. Thanks to my guests, Professor Rana Mitter from Oxford University, Professor Frank DeCotta from the University of Hong Kong, Dr. Daniel Koss from Harvard University, and Associate Professor Ching Dong Yuan from the China Studies Centre at the University of Sydney. Russell Stapleton is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Thanks for listening. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.